Welcome to the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan, a presence on sermon audio for Puritan and Reformed audiobook recordings. For more recordings, go to sermonaudio.com and do a search at the narrated Puritan. This week's biographical sketch for the Man of God Network is Isaac Bacchus who wrote a book called Your Baptist Heritage from 1620 to 1804, which in future podcasts we want to read parts of, but who was Isaac Bacchus? He was born in Norwich, Connecticut, January 9th, 1724. His parents were pious and respectable members of the Pado-Baptist Church in that town. His father was a descendant of one of the first families in the settlement of Norwich, and his mother's pedigree is traced back to the family of the Winslows who came to Plymouth with the first European immigrants to this country in 1620. At a time when the celebrated George Whitfield preached with so much success in that vicinity, some of Mr. Bacchus's connections united with the Separates, a name given to several independent churches formed about this period of a more zealous and spiritual character than the associate Pado baptist churches then and long after claimed to be the standing order for churches established by law. For uniting with these, they were harassed and persecuted by the ruling party. The mother of young Isaac Bacchus, when a widow, with some other of his relations, were cast into prison by these persecuting zealots solely for exercising their conscientious convictions and uniting with those churches which were not established by law. The notes I am reading are partly taken from the Baptist magazine. I only have one copy of the magazine that was rebound, first edition, which I bought many years ago in Grand Rapids, probably from Kriegel Bookstore from 1829. But anyway... To continue, it was in the midst of this excitement that the subject of this memoir was brought to the knowledge of the truth in the 18th year of his age. He furnishes the following simple and striking account of his conversion. Quote, By being born of religious parents and having a religious, though not what is called a liberal education, I have ever esteemed an unspeakable favor, yet I neglected the great salvation for more than 17 years because of the secret imagination that would abridge my present liberty and comfort. And also that when I should in good earnest set about the work, God would be moved to help, pardon, and save me. But in May 1741, my eyes were open to see that time was not at my command and that eternity was directly before me, and in which I might justly be called the next moment. Then I knew what it was to work for my life for three months until on August 24th, as I was alone in a field that was demonstrated to my mind and conscience that I had done my utmost to make myself better without obtaining any such thing, and that I was a guilty sinner in the hands of a holy God, who had a right to do with me as seemed good in his sight, which I then yielded to, and all my objections were silenced. And soon upon this, a way of relief was opened to my soul, which I had never any true idea of before, in which the truth and justice shone with luster in the bestowment of free mercy and salvation upon objects who have nothing in themselves but badness. And while this divine glory engaged all my attention, my burden of guilt and evil dispositions was gone, and such ideas and inclinations were implanted in my heart as were never there before, but which have never been rooted out since, though often overclouded. Soon after this, he united with the Pado-Baptist Church in his native town, where he had been accustomed to attend worship, 
But uh, after about two years, some troubles in that church led to his withdrawal from it. It was not until September of 1746 that he entered upon the duties of the Christian ministry, and the principles which governed him in this important step are described in his discourse, published eight years after, entitled The Nature and Necessity of an Internal Call to Preach the Gospel. Near the close of the following year, he was guided by the disposal of Providence to a parish or precinct called Titicut, upon the river between Bridgewater and Middleborough in the county of Plymouth, Massachusetts, where a Pado-Baptist church of the separate order was formed in February following, to which he ministered with evident success. In August 1746, disputes about baptism were first brought into this church, and while the pastor... Mr. Bacchus was prayerfully considering the subject. Ten persons were baptized by Elder Moulton. The description of his subsequent exercises and the result to which he was brought is thus given in his own words. Quote, About three months after, when the heat of controversy was abated, the question was put to my conscience in my retired hours. Where is it, and in what relation to the church do those stand who are baptized but not converted. I could see that all the circumcised were obliged to keep the Passover, and I'd seen that there was no halfway in the Christian church, nor any warrant to admit any to communion therein without a credible profession of saving faith. No tongue can tell the distress I now felt. Could I have discovered any foundation in Scripture for my former practice, I should most certainly have continued therein. But all my efforts failing, I was at last brought to the old standard so as to leave good men and bad men out of the question and simply inquire, what saith the scriptures? By this means, his mind was at length settled in the full conviction of the baptism of believers only, and he submitted himself to this ordinance on August 22, 1751. For more than four years afterwards, he continued ministering to the same church on the principles of open communion, many of its members being decided Baptists and others still cleaving to the principles and practice of paedo-baptism. This difference created no little embarrassment and furnished frequent occasions of disquietude to both parties, which led to a fresh search into the cause of these difficulties. The following account of the result is from the pen of Mr. Backus, quote, the arguments of the beloved John Bunyan for a free communion with all saints had before appeared conclusive to me and to others, but a review of them discovered his mistake. One argument is that plain laws of old were sometimes dispensed with as circumcision was omitted in the wilderness. David ate of the showbread that was not lawful for him, and the people in Hezekiah's time ate of the Passover, otherwise than it was written. But it was found upon search that each of these were extraordinary cases which were not repeated, and therefore could not afford a plea for dispensing with rule at ordinary times. And as to John Bunyan's capital argument, which is, God has received them, therefore we ought to, it was observed that his example is often inimitable by us, but as far as it is imitable, it is always in the truth. Hence, truth is never to be violated for anyone, no, not to save natural life, which all lawful means should be used to preserve. And truth so clearly requires baptism before the supper that paedobaptists do never come to the table with any but such as are baptized in their esteem. Neither could we understandingly act in being buried in baptism until we were convinced that what was done to us in infancy was not gospel baptism. Therefore, to commune at the Lord's table with any who were only sprinkled in infancy is parting with the truth. But practically saying they are baptized when we do not believe they are. 
I since find that the learned and pious Isaac Gloss and his rational foundation of the Christian church allows this argument to be just, though many still wrangle against it. Upon this conviction that truth limits church communion to believers baptized upon a profession of their own faith, and that into the Christian church neither natural birth nor the doings of others can rightly bring any one soul without their own consent, a church was constituted at Titicut, known as the First Baptist Church in Middleborough, January 26, 1756, and by assistance from Boston and Railbeth, the subject of this memoir was publicly recognized as her pastor in the July following. This is the First Baptist Church constituted in Plymouth County, and at this time was the only one in an extent of country above 100 miles long, from Bellingham to Cape Cod, and near 50 miles wide from Boston to Rehoboth. In this place, and as a faithful and endeared pastor of this flock, Mr. Beck has spent 60 years of his useful life. In 1749, he was married to Susanna Mason of Rehoboth, with whom he lived in the greatest harmony more than half a century. According to his own words, she was the greatest earthly blessing which God ever gave him. They reared up a somewhat numerous family of children, of high respectability, and though never very amply supported by the people to whom he ministered, they were enabled by the blessing of providence and their own industry and frugality to accumulate an estate of considerable value. The church over which he was a spiritual watchman was small for many years, but they had some additions from time to time until the blessed revival which begun in 1779 and increased their number in three years from 59 members to 138. This church was also the germ of several other Baptist churches and the nursing mother of several distinguished ministers of the gospel. And little more than a quarter of a century after its constitution, there were 17 churches within the wide limits above described. Besides the labors of Mr. Bacchus as a Christian pastor, he was eminently distinguished as a noble defender of religious liberty and the rights of conscience, and as an ecclesiastical historian. The part which he took and the service he performed in both these spheres for the general welfare of the Baptist churches furnish a number of incidents which ought to be perpetuated and also serve to illustrate the excellence of his character. He early imbibed a settled aversion to civil coercion and religious concerns. He was taught its iniquity both by experience and observation, having been himself taxed and seized as a prisoner to coerce payment to support a minister on whom he never attended, and indeed at a time when he was pastor and regularly officiated to another church. His members also were sometimes imprisoned for similar causes, nor would he be likely to forget the horror early produced in his mind by the imprisonment of his widowed mother. Few men have exerted themselves more than he did in the support of the equal rights of Christians to worship God unmolested. In 1772, he was chosen an agent for the Baptist churches in Massachusetts in the room of Mr. Davis, formerly pastor of the Second Church in Boston, then lately deceased. The duties of this agency, which was merely of a civil character, were executed by him with fidelity, intrepidity, and some degree of success. 
Members of Baptists and other nonconforming churches and congregations in that state were then so continually harassed for the support of the established clergy that they found it necessary to have someone thoroughly acquainted with the laws and usages, to advise on sudden emergencies, and to afford assistance to those who were in trouble. Their great object was to obtain the establishment of equal religious liberty in the land, which the dominant party were determined to prevent. When the disputes came on, which terminated in the Revolutionary War and the independence of the United States, the Baptists vigorously united with their fellow citizens in resisting the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. But it seemed to them unreasonable that they should be called upon to contend for civil liberty if after it was gained they should still be exposed to oppression and religious concerns. When, therefore, the First Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, the Warren Association, viewing it as the highest civil resort, agreed to send Mr. Backus as their new agent to that convention, there to follow the best advice he could obtain, to procure some influence from thence in their favor. When he arrived in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Baptist Association appointed a large committee, of whom Dr. Samuel Jones was one, to assist their New England brethren. But our endeavor, says Dr. Jones, availed us nothing. One of them told us that if we meant to effect a change in their measures respecting religion, we might as well attempt to change the course of the sun and the heavens. Mr. Backus, failing of success at Philadelphia, on his return met the Baptist Committee at Boston, by whose advice a memorial of their grievances was drawn up and laid before the next Congress at Cambridge near Boston, to which the following answer was returned. Quote, in Provincial Congress, Cambridge, December 9th, 1774. On reading the memorial of the Reverend Isaac Backus, agent to the Baptist churches in this government, resolved that the establishment of civil and religious liberty to each denomination in the province is a sincere wish of this Congress, but being by no means vested with powers of civil government, whereby they can redress the grievances of any person whatever, they therefore recommend to the Baptist churches that when a general assembly shall be convened in this colony, they lay the real grievances of said churches before the same, when and where their petition will most certainly meet with all their attention due to the memorial of a denomination of Christians so well disposed to the public will of their country. By order of the Congress, John Hancock, President, a true extract from the minutes, John Lincoln, Secretary. Such an assembly as is here mentioned, convened at Waterton in July 1775, to which our brethren presented another memorial in which they said, Our real grievances are that we, as well as our fathers, have from time to time been taxed on religious accounts where we were not represented. And when we have sued for our rights, our causes have been tried by interested judges. That the representatives in formal assemblies, as well as the present, were elected by virtue only of civil and worldly qualifications, is a truth so evident that we presume it need not be approved to this assembly. And for a civil legislator to impose religious taxes is, we conceive, a power which their constituents never had to give and is therefore going entirely out of their jurisdiction. Under the legal dispensation where God himself prescribed the exact proportion of what the people were to give, yet none but persons of the worst characters ever attempted to take it by force, 
How daring then must it be for any to do it for Christ's ministers, who says, My kingdom is not of this world. We beseech this honorable assembly to take these matters into their wise and serious consideration before him who has said, With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Is not all America now appealing to heaven against the injustice of being taxed where we are not represented? and against being judged by men who are interested in getting away our money? And will heaven approve of your doing the same thing to your fellow servants? No, surely. We have no desire of representing this government as the worst of any who have imposed religious taxes. We fully believe the contrary. Yet, as we are persuaded that an entire freedom from being taxed by civil rulers to religious worship is not a mere favor from any man or men in the world, but a right and property granted us by God who commands us to stand fast in it. We have not only the same reason to refuse an acknowledgement of such a taxing power here, as America has the above said power, but also, according to our present light, we should wrong our consciences in allowing that power to men, which we believe belongs only to God. This memorial was read in the assembly, and after lying a week on the table was read again, debated upon, and referred to a committee who reported favorably. A bill was finally brought in in favor of the petitioners, read once, and a time set for its second reading, but other business crowded in and nothing more was done about it. In this manner have the Baptists frequently been shuffled out of their rights, after this, they made a number of attempts to get some security for their freedom from religious oppression, but none was formally given them. They had many fair promises which were never fulfilled, and when the state constitution was formed, a bill of rights was made to look one way, but priests and constables have gone another. The first article of the Bill of Rights declares all men are born free and equal, and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, and so on. The second declares, no subject shall be hurt, molested, or restrained in his person, liberty, or estate, for worshiping God in a manner and season most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience, and so on. But notwithstanding all these declarations, many have been molested and restrained in their persons, liberties, and estates on religious accounts. This remained true till within a few years since when the Constitution of Massachusetts was finally purified of this obnoxious feature, and all sects were placed on equality, the things we have thought proper to insert in Mr. Bacchus's biography. He was undoubtedly the draftsman of some of the memorials of his brethren, and he was certainly the able and undaunted expositor of them all. His whole soul was engaged in the prosecution of his agency, insomuch that he became the champion of nonconformity in New England, and was on that account much vilified and abused by the established party. When he waited on the Congress at Philadelphia, he was accused of going there on purpose to attempt to break the union of the colonies. The newspaper abounded with pieces against him, some of which he answered and others he treated as beneath his notice. In one, he was threatened with the halter and the gallows, but he had been too long inured to the war to be terrified by such impotent threats. Bad as were the laws of Massachusetts at this period, their interpretation and execution by bigoted and interested courts were frequently much more exceptionable 
against all such perversions, Mr. Bacchus failed not to lift up the voice of solemn remonstrance. In dotted fearlessness with which he withstood corrupt or partly blinded judges, even to the face, is still remembered by some of that warning remnant who were contemporaneous with his later years. The other sphere of service in which the subject of this memoir acted so distinguished and useful a part was entered in obedience to the present and reiterated solicitations of his brethren. With characteristic humility, he thus adverts in the preface to volume one of his history to his feelings and circumstances when first solicited about the year 1771 to write a history of the churches of New England. When I was requested by several gentlemen of note and others, to undertake this work. Two great objections presented themselves to my mind, namely my great unfitness for it, and the difficulty of obtaining the necessary materials. But their importunity prevailed against the first, and divine providence has removed the other, by conveying into my hands a variety of authentic materials much beyond what I conceive could have now been obtained in the world." In the same preface, he thus indicates the necessity of rewriting the early history of the Puritan churches and governments. It may well be supposed that men who are striving for more power over others than belongs to them will not set their own or their opponent's disposition and character in a just light. And if it should be found that near all the histories of this country which are much known have been written by persons who thought themselves invested with power to act as lawgivers and judges for their neighbors, under the name either of orthodoxy or of immediate power from heaven, the inference will be strong that our affairs have never been set in so clear a light as they ought to be. And if this is not indeed the case, I am greatly mistaken." Under these circumstances, Mr. Bacchus set himself to the diligent search of all the original records within his reach. And in 1777, in the midst of the confusion and suffering occasioned by the War of the Revolution, he published his first volume, a large eight vol, and brought down the history of the colonies, and particularly of their ecclesiastical affairs, to 1690. A single sheet was added as an appendix containing a brief summary of the ecclesiastical affairs of this country down to the present time. This volume is now very scarce, and though containing ample and valuable materials for the historian, they will scarcely require to be republished in their present shape. The second volume contained a church history of New England from 1690 to 1784. He included a concise view of the American War and of the conduct of the Baptists therein, with the present state of their churches. In 1796, a third volume appeared, gleaning up a portion of materials which had been omitted in the others and continuing the history down to that time. He says, Through the whole I have compared actions and events with the Word of God according to the best light I could gain from every quarter. The first and third of the above volumes were printed in Boston, the second in Providence. They contain in the aggregate more than 1,300 pages octavo, and though from the circumstances in which they were successfully produced, it cannot be expected that they would be free from repetitions and some transposition of the order of events, yet the student of our early ecclesiastical history will in vain look elsewhere for much of the interesting and important manner here contained. This distinguished man finishes earthly course with great composure. November 20th, 1806, in the 83rd year of his age, in the 60th of his ministry. 
For a few months previous to his death, he had been laid by from his public labors by a paralysis, which deprived him of the power of speech and the use of his limbs. But his reason continued unclouded to the last, and in his expiring moments he manifested entire resignation to the will of heaven. Few of his favored brethren of this generation are adequately impressed with the sense of their indebtedness to the labors of this departed champion of their cause. He was unquestionably one of the most useful ministers that has ever appeared among the American Baptists. For fifty years he was a laborious servant of their churches, and for more than half this period he diligently devoted what time he could spare from professional duties to historical researches. The vast fund of materials which he thus accumulated must have sunk into entire oblivion had it not been for his unwearied care. As a preacher, he was entirely evangelical. Pungency, pathos, and power characterized many of his discourses, which, though unornamented with rhetorical language, were richly stored with scriptural truth. His unaffected piety, sincerity, and unwavering integrity were proverbial among all that knew him. The following interesting reminiscence has been communicated by the worthy pastor of the church to which Father Bacchus so long ministered. The following anecdote is sometimes related by the aged Christians in this region. An unpleasant rupture took place between Reverend Mr. Alden, late of Bellingham, and a certain Mr. Mann, a member of his church. All attempts for a reconciliation were in vain. At length, a number of ministers were called together for consultation and advice, among whom were Stillman of Boston, Manning of Providence, and Bacchus of Middleborough. The conference was held at the house of the Reverend W. Williams in Renton, and they spent the afternoon and almost all the following night in their pious efforts, but the parties were unyielding, and there was not the least prospect of a settlement. For a long time, Mr. Bacchus had sat with his head bowed down and appeared to be sleeping. A little before break of day, which is said to be the darkest time, Mr. Bacchus rose up, saying, Let us look to the throne of grace once more. And then, kneeling down, he prayed. The spirit and tone of his prayer was such as to make everyone feel that the heart-searching God had come down among them. The result was the contending parties began immediately to melt, and the rising sun saw the rupture healed and closed up forever. I have often heard that good man pray. The efficacy of his prayers did not consist in length, nor gaudy dress, but it seemed that he and his God loved one another, and that he was at home before the throne of grace. I heard the last sermon whichever he had preached. It was delivered in his dwelling house from First Peter 2 verse 9. I remember well the piety, pathos, and unusual earnestness which characterized that discourse. His religion made him willing to die. And that was a small look at the life of the historian for the Baptist churches in America, Isaac Bacchus. Thank you for tuning in to the Man of God Network. And this is the ministry of the narrated Puritan at sermonaudio.com. <laughs>